Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this opportunity we have to meet together today and to study this very important topic that affects our churches in a significant way. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be in charge of what we do and that we will clearly see and understand the principles that the Word of God gives to us in the spirit of prophecy in relationship to working on behalf of people who are struggling with the problem of sin in their lives. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, welcome. Glad to have you here this afternoon. This is the class on redemptive discipline. I'm saying that mainly for me because the last class I had all these folders out already and it turned out that was not the right class to be teaching. <laughs> Sorry, I just got really busy and got in my head that I was teaching this class second period instead of third period. So, so I, I, I did that just to make sure you all here for redemptive discipline, right? Okay, then you're in the right place and I'm in the right place. That part's really good. I want to tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing and the material that you have in your, in your hand. You have uh, a notebook that looks like this, a folder by which you can uh, keep the materials that I'll be giving you. You don't have it yet. Well, you know what? They're right here and if somebody would just take one back to them, that'd be great. I could make you move, but I'm a nice guy, so I won't do that. I only do that to videographers up here. You can have two even if you want. Okay. That's good. Very good. All right. Now, inside here, let me tell you what's in here. First of all, on the left-hand side is the notes for today, the outline for today, which is entitled, uh, The Concept of Redemptive Discipline. We'll be using it extensively today as part of what we're going to be doing. Behind it, you will find an evaluation, which if you're going to stay for the whole five days, I would encourage you to hold off on that evaluation until we get done. And so I'd appreciate that. And I'd encourage you to stay for the five days. This class is not a one-time shot. We're building each day and dealing with the issues that, that uh, apply to redemptive discipline. We'll share some of the basic concepts today and then talk especially tomorrow about more of the application of those uh, principles and work on that from there. Behind that is some blank notebook paper that looks like this. And uh, it's just a notebook paper that's lined and something you're able to use. I have included today which something we are not going to refer to in the sense that it's not the major content of what we do, but it is uh, some handout of materials. And by the way, Joe, you don't have to hold that. You know that. You can because the camera's here. Absolutely. You can set that down there and you're good and it just you're just controlling what's happening with that. Okay? I didn't want you to get tired of holding it. That's why I'm saying this. So I handed this to you. I went online and I, I looked for some uh, information out there in relationship to discipline. I found uh, and, and spiritual discipline, redemptive discipline, and I found some interesting articles here that came out. Uh, the one that's here, this one came out in the Admus Review. Um, See what the date is on that again. I can't remember what it was. It's not showing up here right away. Maybe you'll see it. But at any rate, uh, Dan Cern is the author of this, and his title is "Is Church Discipline Still Needed?" I, Dan happens to be a personal friend of mine. We went to school together, and he's serving right now as coordinator uh, coordinator of evangelism in the Texas Conference and doing a wonderful job down there. But he wrote this article here, and I encourage you to read it. It's not a very long one, but it does help 
you to understand the value and the importance and the need for discipline in the church. We'll talk about what kind and all of that as we go through this. But also I found somewhat fascinating about uh, some articles that come from non-Adventist sources because we think of a lot of Protestant churches especially as being liberal and they don't care about what, any, what anybody does and so on. And that's not globally true. There are a lot of good Christians out there and I'm not going to them for my source of my theology, but I did find some value in relationship and I just wanted you to understand that even in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, whereby there are some who have moved away from the idea of discipline in the church, there are those who recognize not only the importance of it, but the value of it, and the, the fact that it will help to build the church and strengthen the church, not damage the church. Of course, doing it the right way, and that's one of the articles that is here. And so there's several of them here, and then one of them is about uh, discipleship, really, I mean, discipline really works. It's by uh, an individual whose article and material I will give to you later on in the week. Um, that author is, his name's Ken Sand, and he wrote a book called The Peacemaker, and it's a really excellent book, not just dealing with discipline in the church, but dealing also with the, uh, dealing with solving people's problems and interactive com uh, combat that goes on in churches from time to time. And really, uh, he has some excellent material. He's, a, he's not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's a Christian lawyer who has applied this in his own law practice and in his own church and helping people deal with conflict in the church. And redemptive discipline and discipline in the church sometimes does deal with the issue of conflict. And so it'll be a part of that as well. So just wanted you to be aware of the material that's in there and what it's there for. Now I want to get us launching into our class for today. I'm going to share with you the scenario that's in your material as we are looking at the, at the uh, issue of what discipline, redemptive discipline is, the concept there, and then we'll eventually in the next four days be working towards application. All right, so you have your material, and if you turn to the first section there, you're going to find that there is a scenario, and I'd like to read through that scenario with you right now, and we're going to discuss it just for a couple of moments. It's going to set a stage for us for our discussion. So... Let's go through it. I'm going to read it because of the microphone. I'd actually rather have somebody else reading it, but because we are taping this, I want to make sure that that scenario gets recorded on here. So, uh, by the way, this, this class material, the basic foundational material, was originally developed by Elder Jay Gallimore, and he shared it with us as pastors some years ago, a lot of years ago, while I was still pastoring, and that was a lot of years ago, and I was able to say, wait a minute, that's just what our church needs, and what a wonderful uh, thing to have in terms of principles, and implemented it in the church that I was pastoring at the time. We'll talk more about that later on. But uh, he's given me permission to teach this class a a along uh, with him. I've done that before. 
and also to teach it as part of my role as ministerial director for the conference. So I'm sharing some of the material that he developed and then I'm adding to it and giving you modified, modified materials along the way. Here's the scenario that I want you to think about for a moment. You have a man in your church. His name is Mr. B. He is a gifted with enthusiastic leadership talent. He's one of your elders and the general Sabbath school superintendent. His wife is not a member of the church, but does attend fairly often. You receive a phone call from Mrs. B, who tells you with reluctance that she has suspected her husband of being interested in another woman. She tells you that through a private investigator, she has evidence he has been having an intimate affair with a woman at the local spa. Now let me pause here for a moment. I don't mean push the pause button, but pause what I just shared with you. We in our church are not detectives. All right? You notice that it didn't say that the head, the board sent out an investigator, right? This was a wife concerned about her husband. She hired a private investigator. She is not a member of the church. And that private investigator brought back evidence. Okay, we all there together? We are not investigators. And we're not detectives. All right. Mr. B shows no sign of vengeance, but states that she, I'm sorry, Mrs. B shows no sign of vengeance, but states that she will appreciate whatever you can do to save their marriage and protect the good name of the church, which she says she has come to respect. So because she's been attending church and doing so on a regular basis, gotten acquainted with the people, she's not made a commitment to being a Seventh-day Adventist, but she respects the church and she appreciates what the, what the church stands for. And she genuinely does not want the name of the church to come to disrepute. I guess that would be ill repute. No, disrepute? Oh, anyway. You arrange a visit with Mr. B alone, and upon arrival at the home, Mr. B appears embarrassed and quiet. After prayer, you discuss with him the situation you have been informed about and ask him what you can do to help if it is true. Without any defensiveness, he acknowledges that he has been intimate with another woman for some time and that he has been living with a heavy load of guilt. He even appears relieved to talk with someone about it. To your knowledge, no other church members are aware of the situation. Now let me ask this question as we get into this. How many of you are elders in your local church? Any of you deacons or deaconesses in your local church? Any of you that haven't raised your hand so far, members of the local church board? Are you members of the local church board? Okay. So I'm assuming that those who did not raise their hands do not currently have a leadership role in their church. Is that correct? If I have stated that correctly, please raise your hand. All right, good. That wasn't going to be the invitation to leave. That was just simply so I know my audience and with whom I'm speaking, all right? So great, that gives, it's good to have a good mix. I like having that. It's not, a, it's not a problem. I just want to know what context you might be coming to this from. Now, I know you all have your own journey in life and the kinds of things that you've experienced and you may have seen churches work through uh, church discipline and so on, but 
we want to talk about the biblical principles of discipleship that relate to discipline in the local church. All right, so let's talk about this situation for a little bit. We are recording this, so I'd appreciate it if you would project your voice so that we can hear you and uh, and maybe pick it up on the on the on the recording devices that are are sharing with us. I'm recording this to be able to use this as a training tool uh, in later times for times I can't be someplace and a pastor wants to be able to use it in his church to train his church members. So that's why I'm doing it. So, all right, here's Mr. B. He's an elder in your church. He's also a Sabbath school superintendent. What would you do if you got a phone call like this? Now, I want you to think realistically, and I'm not going to punish you for, quote, having a wrong statement. This is a chance for us to talk a little bit. How would you honestly react to getting a phone call like this? What would you think you might want to do first? Okay, please. Okay, it's great. Is that what I heard here? Is that what I was going to get back over here? Great, you're all on the right track. That's a great, great direction here. Then what do you think you might do? Send Dan. <laughs> That's because Dan, your husband, is an elder in the church, right? Okay, all right. Well, all right, let's have a discussion about that. We will, I mean, not right now, but we will discuss that along the way. Any ideas what you might do? I mean, honestly, what would you do? I contact either the pastor or another elder to go with me. This says he went alone. I wouldn't want to go alone mm-hmm. for a visit. Uh, it could get hostile. It could get... You mm-hmm. want somebody to go with you. Mm-hmm. So you've got somebody to mm-hmm. establish, I mean, you know, more or less say, oh, yes, this is what happened. In case he comes back and says something. Okay. Good point. Good point. Please. So I'm going to repeat what you said because you're a little farther back and I want to make sure the recording says you said you would like to suggest maybe it'd be better go alone because that way you're not being the posse or whatever and making him feel that much more threatened. Okay, good. Please. I would follow her example because mm-hmm. that's what Matthew 18 tells us to do at first. Mm-hmm. Well, what I want is a woman, and mm-hmm. a woman should go. It's a man, a man. I would, if it was a woman, I would go. I would send my wife. Okay, okay. If the woman was the indiscretion. But if it was a man, the indiscretion first, I would go because that's what, that's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 18. Um, that's a very practical application of what we're talking about because in, we're speaking somewhat generically, whether I go or not go, whether you're male or female, that wasn't really the discussion we we're having, but it's an important part of the discussion when we start applying this in a very specific case. So if you are a, a man and this is a man who's uh, got this issue and all, certainly that's the context you want to be. If you are a woman and you receive that phone call, then you're in a little bit of a difficult situation in being able to know how to apply that, and we're going to discuss that a little bit more. I'm going to not try right now 
to give you all the answers. I'm just trying to get to the surface the kinds of challenges we face. What, what Joe shared up here is part of the challenge that we all face. I'm not sure I want to go alone because of the fact I don't know what I'm in for and I don't, you know, those are the kinds of questions and processes that come to our mind. All I'm asking right now is how are we thinking realistically, practically, and honestly in relationship to this? But now the real question we have to ask ourselves is what's the biblical approach to this? What does Jesus want to do? What does Ellen White share with us as the process by which we should be working to seek to help people? I do want you to keep this scenario in mind because we're gonna come back to scenarios like it, if not the exact scenario later on, and see how we can apply what we've learned in our class to that scenario. I'd like to move now to the next page and I'll go back to the screen for the rest of this part of the presentation. We won't, no, actually I won't. I'm gonna take you to the next slide and then we're going to talk a little bit about what's here and I made the mistake of not grabbing my Bible. That was a big mistake. I'm gonna to have to use my, no, I can't do that because you're using it. Dan, would you do me a favor? Uh, no, actually, I did bring my Bible. It's right here. Sometimes I made a mistake and didn't realize I didn't. So thank you, though, for being willing to help me out. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew 18, because this really is the foundation for what we want to share today. Thank you for your reference to it earlier. And I know that you all understand Matthew 18. You've heard of it before in terms of basic material, but I want to I want to really look through Matthew 18 today, and it'll be the major focus of what we are going to talk about. So take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 1. And I know the recording is recording all of this, and they may choose to, to uh, cut out this little part here because they can, an individual can read it on their own as they might choose to do. But let's read it through if you've got your Bible on your cell phone or electronic device or you've got the real deal in your, in your hand. Let's read through Matthew 18. I'm going to start right up here and let's just work our way around. And if you don't want to read, just pass on to the next person. We'll go back to the back rows and then work up to the front here. Matthew 18, starting with verse 1, one verse at a time. At the time, I'm sorry, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, right here and then across. Okay. And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them. Okay, next row. All right. Okay. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name Okay, very back row. Okay. This. 
Okay, come on up here to Doc, Shell, somebody. <laughs> Now, I know that the meat of the discipline quote process comes a little bit later, but we're going to pause right there and let's ask ourselves some questions and let's answer those questions. First of all, according to verse 1, what are some problems or the question that causes problems in your, in your local church like was going on here right now? What's the, what's the answer to that? Who's important? Who's, who's the leader? Who's the greatest? Right? <clears throat> Why is that a problem? Vanity, pride, it, it's part of that root of sin. We know that Satan, that was his problem all along, that, say, that, uh, that pride was in his heart, that he wanted to be the greatest. I mean, he wanted to be God, that is, the greatest. And he's used that tool all along, hasn't he? All right, so question number two, by the way, just write in your, in your notes there. Question number two, from verses one to three, who does this little child represent according to verse three? Ye. Ye. <laughs> Us, me, you. Who is Jesus talking to at this time? He's talking to his disciples, isn't he? He's talking about those that are walking with him and they're struggling with this problem of, of greatness or who's going to be the greatest and they're trying to work that through. And so it's unless you are converted and become as little children. So the issue is with us. Many of the problems in our local church is that we haven't really, we, we get in conflicts with each other. We get in conflicts with, with theology. We get in conflicts with whatever. And we really haven't stopped to ask some of those basic questions. Am I doing what I'm doing out of a converted heart? And that's the place we need to be in our, in our, uh, in our lives. Number three, question uh, comes from verse four. What is the answer to friction in the church? What is it? Humble yourself. Whoever humbles himself as a little child. Now again, we're laying the foundation for the principles, the concept of redemptive discipline. And if we don't put it in the context that Jesus put it in, we will miss out on what we need to know about the principles here. Now, question number five, four, coming from verse 5, says, What does it mean to receive such a child in my name? What do you think that means? Okay. Don't we tend to respond to children in a, in a positive way? Tend to, not always, especially when they're being ornery, not obedient, talking when they shouldn't be talking, running when they shouldn't be running. But still we tend to respond there, and whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me in humility, with a humble attitude toward those people. Again, this is the context 
in which Jesus is discussing the ways that we interact with each other and the way we deal with problem behavior. Number six, I'm sorry, number five, verse six, how does one put stumbling blocks in front of a little one? Any ideas? How do you put stumbling blocks in front of someone? I'm sorry? Okay, treating them meanly. Mm -hmm. Okay. By being bossy, all right. Saying one thing, doing another. Saying one thing, yeah, doing another, good. Uh huh, okay. No sympathy, no willing to connect, absolutely. Others? How do you put stumbling blocks in front of people? Keep thinking about that. How serious are the consequences of such behavior? I'm sorry? Okay. Absolutely. Both is the case. And that, and that is the part we must not miss. Salvation for all the individuals that are involved in this process is at stake. And Jesus is trying to help us to understand what that means for you and for me. There's a lot at stake here. The, the truth is this is not an easy class to have a discussion in, in the sense that this is a very sensitive area. It's so sensitive that the churches, for the most part, have moved away from the whole concept of discipline. They don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to even deal with it. And the tragic part of that is salvation is at stake. And Jesus came here. He didn't ignore the fact that salvation was at stake. And he didn't ignore the fact that there were problems. When it came to the Pharisees, he dealt with the Pharisees with the sin that they had. With a woman caught in adultery, he dealt with the woman with the sins that she had. With the lepers, she, he dealt with the problems that they had. God came down here as the Savior. Jesus came down here in order to be able to redeem us. He didn't ignore our problems because he knew that salvation was at stake. But the devil has managed to get into us, and I'm speaking generically, I don't mean you. Well, maybe I do. But me too, right? Us. He gets into us in our churches and he begins to pull us away from the issue of dealing with these problems. And instead of our churches being able to become strong, our churches get weaker and weaker and weaker, as you will discover when you read those, those supplemental articles that I gave you to read. And that's why we need this in order to be able to strengthen the church. Number seven comes from verse seven. What two groups are warned of judgment to come for producing stumbling blocks? What does Jesus say in verse seven? Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to... So offenses are damaging to all involved. We'll talk a little bit more about this uh, uh, in a few moments. 
Question number eight comes from verses eight and nine. What is better to do than to become a stumbling block? Okay, speak loudly. Cut your foot off. <laughs> In other words, we have to take it so seriously that we're willing to realize there might be some pain involved. Jesus doesn't tell us to cut our fingers off or our hands off or pluck our eyes out. He's using this by way of helping us to understand what the issues are and how serious this is and that it may involve some challenge to us. It might involve talking to that person and even being threatened by that person. It could be there. It may be mis being misunderstood. It may be all of those things. So there are some challenges. All right, we stopped at verse 9. Let's continue there. I think we'll start with Pam or Dan. Dan, start with verse 10, would you? Okay. All right. Okay, let's stop there at verse 14 for, uh, for a moment. Let's take a look at what we're talking about uh, here. In question number nine, it says, Who is constantly watching over the little ones? Mm -hmm. Heaven cares, right? God cares about what's going on. It means that anybody and everybody is being watched over by heaven, and he's helping us to understand that that's the context in which we want to apply the principles we're looking at. Question 10, verses 11 to 14, who is the one lost sheep according to this context? Who is the lost sheep? The sinner. Who's that? All of us, right? It's talking about all of us. But we're also wanting to put in the context here that, that when we come to the Lord Jesus, we have a responsibility to be caring about those who have not yet come to Jesus. It's interesting you're wearing that shirt that says lost on it. You know, that's, I gotta, I gotta say that seems to fit with what we're talking about here a little bit. All right, I gotta keep going. All right, question 11. What kind of efforts to find the lost are expected by our Heavenly Father? What is expected? Whatever it takes. Yeah, go out and find them. Don't leave them out there. We are so afraid, and I'm telling you, I'm, I understand what that's like. I happen to be a human being, just like you, and I don't like confrontation or anything that smells like confrontation. And sometimes when it comes to these kinds of situations, it, it feels like a confrontation. It feels like, uh, you know, I'm risking my friendship. But there are times when that, that I, may, I am, because there's something more at stake here. 
And God says he expects us to go out and find those lost sheep, understanding that they are lost. And they're not all wearing a t-shirt that says lost on it. Sometimes they're lost and they simply don't know it. How valuable is that individual that That's right. has that problem? Is it worth your friendship to save him mm -hmm. or her? How valuable was that person to Jesus? And that's what Jesus is trying to illustrate for, isn't it? That's the question we need to ask. Exactly right. All right, let's go on with verse 15, wherever we left off. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and the man. He shall hear the thoughts of the man. Okay, verse uh, 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Okay. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him eat and do like a Edith mm -hmm. and a tax collector. Okay, next row. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Where two or three are gathered together by him, I am there in the midst of them. So, in a sense, now we're getting to the heart of the issue related to the process of redemptive discipline, following the counsel that Jesus gave, but again setting it in the context of what he shared from the beginning, treating people as individuals who are like little children who need to be treated carefully, recognizing that they're like uh, sheep that are lost that need to be cared for. So question number 12 from verse 15, in the light of the parable of the one lost sheep, what does go and reprove him suggest? Okay, and pointing out his error, but in, in for, but for what reason? For repentance, because? Yes, because? Okay, all right, I want you all to turn and look at this. What's your name? Jerry. Jerry. I want you all to look at Jerry for a moment and read what it says on his shirt. Because they're lost, exactly right. Okay, <laughs> sorry, Jerry, I can't help picking on you. you just, I, I don't always get an illustration quite like that to be able to use. All right, because they're lost. The issue is... The correction is in the context of someone that's lost. And if you don't correct them in their lostness, they're going to die. When you have a sheep that's lost and it's wandering out there and they can't find their way back, they're going to die. The wild animal is going to come and get them. They're going to die of starvation, whatever. You've all heard the stories of people who are driving out in the mountains somewhere like the, the family did in Oregon that uh, was driving headed toward the coast and unfortunately took a wrong turn and got on a road that led them out away where they got stuck in snow and they were, they were lost. 
and except for the fact that people were looking for them, they would all have died. But the husband did die and over the period of time because they were lost. Lostness is not a state you and I want anybody to be in, in ourselves or anybody else that we care about. And God wants us to care about them. Question 13, verse 16, if the one lost sheep does not want to come home, what should be done? What does verse 16 say? Okay. In other words, we can't force them, correct? But we do want to do everything we can. As, as Pam said earlier, we want to reach out to them and and in all the ways we can, whatever it takes to be able to help them. In this case, we're going to go out and take somebody else along with to try to help them to understand the state of lostness. Question 14, what three steps are to be taken by the church? What are they? That's number one. First, go on your own. Number two. Okay, take somebody with you. Number three. Take some, okay, take other church members, or speaking more generally, you take it to the church, all right? Now you're involving the church because they, individuals have not heard this, and this is the counsel that Jesus gives. You know what? I'm really thankful for Jesus' counsel. I, I'm telling you, I might not do this very well if it weren't for Jesus. If he wasn't helping me with this process, I could get it all mixed up. I could do it all wrong. There are challenges when I follow his counsel because I'm dealing with real human beings. But I know that I'm following the counsel of the very best, the Savior of the world, when I follow these steps. Question 15, done properly in the fear of the Lord and with the compassion of the Savior, how does heaven view such action? That's coming from verses 18 to 20. How does heaven view this action? Okay, he's with us. He's part of this. And he's helping us to understand that he is going to, uh, to recognize that what we have done uh, is supported of heaven, right? Right, exactly. That's exactly right. We want heaven support, don't we? We want to do it in the right way, and that is the context here. Now, the last verses, which we're not going to take the time to read today, is that parable of the unforgiving servant. And the context, again, is Jesus is talking about the need of people. And there are times when people need to be forgiven, they get forgiven and they won't forgive anybody else. That's not good either, right? And there's some very practical lessons that we could list here involved uh, in relationship to redemptive discipline. I'll let you do that on your own, but I want to keep moving because I can tell that I'm going to run out of time really quickly if I don't keep moving. So let's move on and you can follow along in the context of your materials as well. I want to start applying these principles that we've been talking about in reading through the scripture. The first thing I want to talk to you about is that there are different kinds of discipline. There's a difference between ostrich discipline, judgmental discipline, and redemptive discipline. 
So what do you think ostrich discipline is like? What are ostriches known for? That's right, burying their head down in the sand. And what does that mean to us in this context? What kind of discipline is that? It's none, yeah. <laughs> you're, just, you're just looking away, you're just ignoring it. Is ostrich discipline supported in Matthew chapter 18? I don't see anywhere there where that method of discipline is outlined at all. And yet, which method of discipline is most often used in the local church today? The ostrich method of, method of discipline, which really is no discipline at all, as some of you pointed out. It's nothing. It's got no value to that human being. It's not strengthening, strengthening the church. But it feels good to us because I don't have to go out and confront that person. There's no pain in my life. There's no challenge here. Really? Is there really no pain in my life? What's happening in that person's life? What's happening in that local church? What happens when the issue that needs to be addressed is spilling over into the lives of other people in the church and that issue is being ignored. Is it really not putting pain in my life? I'll tell you what, I've seen what happens when these kinds of things are not addressed and when they are allowed to fester and linger, it's not long before that church is decimated. I can tell you about churches in Michigan that have almost nobody attending them anymore because issues were not addressed when they should have been addressed. And I'm not talking about theological issues. I'm talking about interpersonal issues where people couldn't get along with each other and began to divide the church over those kinds of issues. Indeed. So ostrich, we get that one. What's the next one? Judgmental discipline. What's that? Yeah, judgment. Let's, let's take care of this guy. He needs to be punished. He needs to be taken care of. I'm sorry? Yeah, stoning. Okay, right. We need to deal with this. It's judgmental. It's We're going to deal with that person and take care of them and, and in terms of embarrassing them or whatever. Take, we're going to deal with this problem. Judgmental. Jesus says, judge no man. Right? But now the challenge comes for us is that there's another one. It's called redemptive discipline. What is the goal of redemptive discipline? To restore, to do what was being pointed out here. What was Jesus trying to illustrate? He was trying to illustrate the need for dealing with the problem. No ostrich here dealing with a problem in terms of helping them understand the danger, and the danger is judgment. That's the danger, but that doesn't mean then being judgmental to that in, in regard to that individual. Now, here's where, you know, I think we all get the ostrich one, and in spite of the fact we all understand and we all agreed it's the most common, we all agree that it's not supported in the Bible. And so we're, I think we're all going to be able to say, all right, we're not going to deal with ostrich uh, discipline in our church. We're going to reject that. 
But there are times when we get to the judgmental and the redemptive, and we're having a hard time sorting those two out. What are those two really in practical application? Because we really do want to restore, we do want to redeem, we do want that to be accomplished, but how do we do that without falling into the judgmental trap, or do we? That's part of the question that we need to deal with. One of the things I want us to keep in mind here is that God is responsible for the legal consequences. The church's work is to be redemptive. Wow, I want you to keep that in mind, but I don't want you, because if you're like my mind, I'm starting to draw some conclusions right now in that statement. I'm saying, okay, legal he'll take care of the legal consequences so we can be an ostrich and ignore that because we want to redeem the person and we want them at church. We think that attendance at church is redemption. Well, we already said that, no, we're not sure that's the case. So how do we now begin to apply all of this? All right, in your notes, you have some materials there, and I want to apply this uh, to this. I think it's in your notes, isn't it? You know what we're doing? Okay, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about some of the similarities here. We finished at 545, right? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right, I've got 30 minutes. All right, we'll do it. We want to apply Matthew 18 now in relationship to how these things work. What are some of the similarities and the differences between judgmental and redemptive discipline? First of all, both are dealing with guilt and sin. Yes? Redemptive discipline cannot ignore guilt and cannot ignore sin. If I'm dealing with Mr. B, I can't ignore the fact that he's having a relationship with a woman that's not his wife. I can't ignore that. Yes? Right. I mean, even the world recognizes the problem with that and the challenge with that. Oh, yeah, most of the world. <laughs> Thank you. That's true. All right, both must take decisive steps. Judgmental is going to take decisive steps because judgment must be served. This must be taken care of. We have caught him. We must arrest him. We must now deal with him. We throw him in jail. We put him through a trial, and we deal with it. Of course, that's judgmental. It's dealing with decisive steps. There's nothing in Matthew 18 that says redemptive has no steps that it's not decisive in what it does. It has an intentional purpose. It has, uh, in terms of those steps, but it, they are decisive and they are intentional. Here's where this gets tricky. Both of them can be viewed as punishing. Am I right? Tell me why that's a true statement. Okay, you can go about it the wrong way, yes? Trying to go about it the right way, but yet mm -hmm. you do it wrong. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
So exactly, you're dealing with you're dealing with the person who's doing it might do it in an incorrect way, and and might be having a punishing attitude towards it, and an individual receiving it might also have the same response in terms of thinking, wait a minute. I don't see the redemption here at all. I want to be part of this church and I want to be able to go on and, and, and all and you're telling me that what I'm doing is wrong and this feels like punishing. It feels like you're punishing me. You, you're telling me I have to do this or I have to stop that or I have to whatever. It feels like punishing. So those two kind of connect with each other, don't they? They cross over, don't they? Good. Give you this example of using adultery. It's the same standard for you in judgmental redemption. You're looking at the family of adultery as a standard. You're both using the same standard of how you apply this. So you can view it as being judgmental because it's my fortune, it's right, first of So when we begin to recognize that the standard is there, not established by us, but established by God, when we're dealing with God's standard, then we recognize why this can be a, a challenge, but shouldn't be. Both are dealing with the same standard, and that's why it can feel that way when we're working through that. Thank you. Very, very good point. Both have eternal consequences, do they? So if I'm coming at it with in the wrong way, in a judgmental way, and not a redemptive way, I'm still dealing with eternal consequences, and I, I have to recognize I could do it in such a way that I could push that person farther and farther away from God. The challenge, of course, is that, that when I'm trying to deal with it in a redemptive way, it may feel to that person like punishment and like they're being pushed farther and farther away from God. And, you know, I, I, and we may want to come back to this later on, but I, I think it was last week I was reading, maybe the week before, I was reading about a Seventh-day Adventist pastor who walked away from her congregation because the fact that she felt that she was being dishonest to God and to the congregation by not admitting that she was bisexual and that she needed to be free and be able to, to be what she was and to be able to... I'm saying, wow, there are eternal consequences of these things. And people are getting some of these things all mixed up and confused in this world. And these challenges are significant. They have eternal consequences in them. And people are coming away with their own conclusions when they walk away from the standard or interpret the standard in a way that says a person can be whatever they think they are or, or they should be. Well, let's talk about some of the differences, especially in relationship to redemptive discipline. Redemptive discipline has some significant differences into it. Tomorrow we'll get in depth into applying these principles and, and how to apply them in the local church, how to set up a structure in your local church to be able to really begin to apply these principles. Because the truth of the matter is, the way we tend to operate tends to lean 
in on the judgmental side, and I'm pointing here both with these differences here, but doesn't tend to include the redemptive discipline process. Redemption is seeking to restore. Judgmental typically is not seeking to restore. It's to punish. It's to stop the action. It's to deal with this and bring judgment upon that person. That's why they, you know, a church might have what sometimes is called a church trial. Now, we don't typically use that church, that word in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I don't like it. It's not redemptive sounding. And there are churches that did that. If you've ever read any of the uh, little bit of Ellen White's story or any part of it or seen the latest video on Tell the World and all that, remember when Ellen White's family was taken in a church trial, the Methodist church, and they were dismissed from the church because they were following William Miller? That was that church trial, and some churches use that term and have that, especially in the past. Now, they may have new terms today. The goal is restoration. That is the purpose of bringing this person back to saving them in terms of recognizing their lostness and moving away from that. It's pleading with one before they go too far. I remember a pastor, he's coming to me and he's telling me about an experience that he's got going on. I mean, he's, he's talking to me right now uh, while this is an ongoing situation with members in his church, and these individuals are, are, are one, one individual's leaving their spouse and going off with another individual in the church, and he's pleading with them. He's trying to convince them not to do this. He's even literally chasing them in his car, trying to get them to stop. And they're so resistant to this, but he's so determined he wants to save them. Why? Because he's trying to keep them from going too far. The attitude is to save, not to dispense an eye for an eye. Jesus, when he talked about an eye for an eye, when uh, the Old Testament talks of when Jesus, again, talking about an eye for an eye, it wasn't just to bring about the judgmental consequences. It was in order to have an attitude to save. But the Jews, by the time they got to the time of Jesus, had an attitude toward redemption and salvation and dealing with problems as an eye for an eye. I'm gonna, he did that to me, I'm going to do it to him. That's an eye for an eye. But the attitude is to save a person, to redeem that person. The pain of process can often stop if guilty turns to repentance. Now here are a couple of really important clues to redemptive discipline. Something that I learned from Elder Gallimore and, and, and he learned from the Lord, and I'm so grateful that the Lord uses instruments to teach us but I'm going to tell you that in my early ministry, I didn't really understand truly the principles of redemptive discipline. I did understand and I learned in school about the principles of judgmental discipline. Now, the teachers that were teaching me weren't trying to teach me to be judgmental. They were trying to teach me the principles of discipline and the need that the local church has. But there were a couple of ingredients that, all right, me and my personal human nature wasn't getting. 
And that was those principles that help us to understand we're not always trying to say that I can catch somebody so that I can punish them. And that's an important part of this that we will be looking at a little bit more in the days ahead. Redemptive discipline is a church with its arms always open to save, always wanting to be able to welcome a person home and doing everything they can, whatever it takes to redeem that person. Now, you know what? Some people don't want to be redeemed. Did you know that? I mean, honestly, some people don't want to be redeemed. Now, sometimes, I think one of the challenges that we face and we've got to work through in the days ahead is sometimes people think they want to be redeemed, but think that redemption is not what Jesus says redemption is. And there is a difference. We have to work with that. But the church is always trying to reach that person, has their arms open wide. The church is satisfied. The church is satisfied. Satisfied when a person is restored. This is redemptive discipline. The goal is restoration. And the church is satisfied when a person is restored. Now here's the, here's the part I hope that you're beginning to put this together. If a person is restored, do they also have to be punished? I don't want you to answer that question. I want you to think about it as we move ahead. All right, who is being redeemed? We think in the context of the lost sheep. Who is, who is being redeemed? It is the sheep that is what? Okay, the consideration is, well, I've got a sheep that's lost. You know, with all due respect, sheep, I'm the shepherd, and right now you are in the fold. I'm okay with you being in the fold, but I've got a lost sheep. Bear, 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 don't leave us alone. Bear, 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 don't, uh, you know, take care of me. Bear, bear, bear. Now, you know what I'm illustrating here? Isn't it sometimes when your pastor or your elders in your church want to spend their energy trying to reach out to the lost? And, oh, but you're not taking care of me. You're in the fold. Ellen White specifically addresses that issue with us. That's not what this class is about, but I just wanted to put that in here because it fits in to this connection. The second consideration is the redemption of the name of Jesus. What does that mean? Somebody tell me, what does that mean? Okay. Okay. All right. And how does that fit into the context of redemptive discipline? You're on the right track. Keep going. If that person was redeemed, I mean, he's, he's, he's enjoying that one. Exactly. Jesus' name is redeemed when a person is saved. Is it Jesus' name redeemed when a person is punished? <laughs> Think on that for a moment. But the challenge that we have is that we must recognize that our actions reflect on the name of Jesus. Yes or no? Yeah. 
If I go and rob a bank and my name appears in the newspaper and I'm the pastor or the head elder or whatever, what does that do to the name of Jesus? Today, when you see the Muslim world and how the Muslim world does not respect Christians, it doesn't respect them because it looks at Christians and says, wait a minute, you're not like Christ at all. The way you behave is not what I see Christ. That's why we don't like you. That reflects on the name of Jesus, doesn't it? And it happens the same way in our communities. I've had people as a pastor call me and say, do you know that one of your church members, this is what they did, or this is what they do, or... You know, that reflects on the church. It reflects on Jesus. And that's the next part. Third consideration is the redemption of the injured church. Jesus is the primary issue here. Saving that person is the primary issue. But along the way, the church is being affected by that as well. There are some really nasty sins out there today. One of the, the kinds that I really hate to hear about is when somebody has been molesting children in the local church. And that gets out in the public, it gets into the internet, it gets into the news today, the media, they just swarm all over that stuff. And they love to be able to put next to it that this person was of such and such Baptist church, or such and such Catholic church, or such and such Seventh-day Adventist church. Because they know, the devil knows what that does. The fourth consideration is the injured community. Using the example of what I just used, is the community injured by these kinds of problems? Pardon me? Absolutely. In Mr. B's case, especially being affected there, if we're dealing with a child abuse type situation, I'm in Lansing right now. I live just off of college. You know where college leads to? leads to Michigan State University. You know what's going on on the campus of Michigan State University? Not so much on there. You know what one of the doctors there that was coaching or part of the whatever? I mean, does that affect the community? Yes, it affects the community. When all these children are being affected, all these children, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, MSU had this big scandal that's still going on, Dr. whatever his name, who was the doctor for these uh, athletes, gymnastic team, and all of that, and how he was involved with these kids, and all of now it's coming out, and does it affect, it affects them, it affects the families, it affects the community, it affects Michigan State University, it gives everybody a bad name. When it's the church, it's the same thing, isn't it? Same kind of thing happening. So the fourth consideration is consider the community. Why, you see, do we need to take seriously this issue of redemptive discipline? Because the impact is fourfold. And it is something that must be addressed, but again, with the purpose of leading people to Christ. All right, I'm going to go through a process here. It's in your notes here. We're going to come back to this tomorrow, but I'm going to go through it fairly quickly to be able to outline a little bit of this because time's getting away from me now. I thought I had plenty of time, and all of a sudden I don't have it anymore. First of all, the true concept 
of redemptive discipline equals am I my brother's keeper? Yes or no? Yes. Yes in relationship to a qualified yes. Lovingly confronting a person with sinful behavior? Yes. I'm my brother's keeper. It's my responsibility. Joe's been robbing banks. I have to help Joe because I care about Joe. You haven't been robbing banks, have you? I'm not telling you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Second, yes. Using appeals of the church to return? Yes. The church is using its appeals, its approach to be able to reach out to that person with the goal of bringing them back. Yes, they're my brother. Yes, they're my sister. I am my brother's keeper. I'm my sister's keeper. I have their responsibility. No, when it means endeavoring to force the conscience by any means. So that's when by any means necessary is not totally accurate. I'm going to do everything I can to save a person but I have to leave the decision in the hands of that individual. Matthew 18, rightly understood, equals a series of appeals. They become more earnest and more public to, in order to be able to illustrate what it is that needs to happen there. I'll give you a, an illustration from my own experience of how this works and why it works, but it starts with a series, uh, an individual appeal, and develops more from there until it becomes clear that the guilty chooses to um, be outside of the flock and can't be part of the flock. You can't be part of the flock if you are not walking with the flock. When a person is go going off in a total different direction, I will say this, that dear young lady who said, I've got to be honest with who I am, instead of turning that problem over to Jesus, but being honest and walking away, she was already walking away from Jesus. She had already walked away from Jesus. She had already taken that step. She was being honest with it, and that is an appropriate thing to do. The process, the first step, is a private visit, not just necessarily limited to only one visit. Sometimes we think that we can only do it once, and if we only do it once, I mean, if we do it once, we've fulfilled our responsibility. That may or may not be true. But if the person is responding, I may want to go back more than once, yes? And if I can keep it contained, that's a key word here, if I can keep this contained, the redemptive process is greatly enhanced. We'll talk about that more later. But a cover a multitude of sins by a private visitation, it means... Sometimes uh, it's impossible to keep things private. We know that. There may be wider damage to consider. We have to work through that whole process. The second step is to take responsible people with us. A goal there is to be able to use combined influence to be strong, uh, that will be strong enough in helping that individual realize that this really is serious and now they need to take a stand for moving away from that problem. The third step is the influence of the entire church in a last effort to redeem and be able to bring them back. And the efforts of all three steps are rebuffed. That's when things get to be challenging, and we need to talk about that. At some point, the church should be removed as an individual from membership. But we want to talk about the steps that lead up to that process, and the kind of things happening. I'm just outlining a general process and how that goes. This is not a judgmental process. It's a redemptive process. The church should remove the individual 
but the hope always is that the absence of intimate fellowship leads that person to want to be back in the church and to return to the fold again. To remove from friend membership does not mean to treat them with disrespect. It means to treat them like we might treat a Gentile. And that is we want to win Gentiles, right? We do health classes and outreach classes because we want to become their friends. We want to win them. We want them to be uh, influenced by kind and caring people. We shouldn't start doing that with a person, stop doing that with a person who is erring. We should be just as anxious that the efforts don't to restore don't stop. They should resemble efforts for unbelievers. And the relationship is no longer that of a family, but of a family with a non-family member trying to win them back. Who should be involved? The scripture is clear. The whole body, the whole family needs to be involved in this process. The entire church should be constantly seeking to prevent loss. Catch that. I'm almost going by it too quickly, but it should be that the church is constantly working to prevent loss by setting up a process and a structure that is able to deal with these things, that it doesn't only become, well, we got a problem in the church, got to have a church trial. Nobody set up a process, nobody worked through it. It need to be, needs to be started with the pastor. It needs to be uh, and, uh, worked with with the elders. The elders need to be working and connecting with people. And this is not something the pastor can do alone. The elders must be deeply involved in this. And the church needs to be involved with this in an appropriate way. The shepherding the flock is taking place here. And we are coaching the pastors and the elders are coaching the process of redemptive discipline in the church because there are some church members who just love the judgmental process. They just love to see that suffering sinner, you know, taken care of and dealt with there, but they don't want to put any energy or any pain into saving that person or caring about that person. And Jesus is trying to teach us something different. The preventive work includes... Regular spiritual visits by elders, being able to understand when a problem is a problem before it becomes a real problem. We don't want to disfellowship somebody because they're working on Sabbath. We want to help them to know that working on Sabbath is not the right thing to do according to the commandments of God. That happens here in those spiritual visits, regular elders meetings, where rescue plans are made. Some churches don't have elders meetings. They don't meet together. And if your pastor's not having that and you can't get him to do it, come see me. Because that's where the work really gets done in that local church. It needs to happen on a regular basis. An atmosphere of steadfast love needs to be generated in that local church. It needs to be true biblical teaching and preaching. There needs to be the truth taught from the Word of God so that people in the church understand what sin is, not that they might be condemned, but that they might avoid it. They might be able to turn away from it. That's why as we see the sins of this age coming to fruition and being generated so much, we want those sins to be identified because those sins will lead to eternal death for people. It's really a reality for people. We also need to be part of... Re Preventive process is educating members in the principles of Matthew 18 so that they know how to individually deal with problems that they might encounter and so that when the church is dealing with it, 
they all, the whole family knows that this is a family process of caring about the needs of people and the challenges that they are facing. Well, that brings us to the end of our session today. Question, Dan? Say it again. <laughs> yeah, and that's the sad part about it. That's because Matthew 18 is not being taught and not being applied by the church members. And, and that's why what we talk about in the days ahead is so absolutely critical that the church is able to do the teaching that's needed to be done and to share the principles that will help people to say, wait a minute, I, I, this may seem difficult, but it really is the right thing to do. And, and it's not that hard if we all do it and we realize we're doing it out of love. So really good point. Really appreciate that. Please. Mm. The principle there is somebody sins against you, you go to that person, you resolve the issue, nobody else wants to know about it. It's done. Mm -hmm. But in an issue where the whole congregation of the community, the whole church already knows about it, so I, I didn't. suggest that it might be wise to, at that point, take two elders or a man and a woman as opposed to going to See, part of the problem is that we haven't recognized. When the Matthew 18 principle is being violated, we're usually thinking of the guilty person, you know, the person who, quote, offended that person or whatever. But we haven't stopped to really think about the person who put it on Facebook instead of going and talking to that person. Okay? So that's part of our journey. Okay, one last comment, then I've got to have a closing prayer. That's exactly where we're going, and we're going to talk about that in detail. Thank you very much. Great place to end. We should all be responsible, even if we're not the elder or the deacon, right? And take care of that. Thank you so much. Let's have a closing prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us in our discussion today. And we pray that as we talk more about redemptive discipline, that you will really help us to apply these principles in a very practical way. That we'll understand the importance and how critical they are to the future of the church and also to the eternity of all of the church members, including those who might be offending and might be sinning against you. Just as we all have been sinners, we have to learn and grow, and we need to learn to grow together. I pray that you'll bless us as we go our way today and uh, thank you for all that we get to learn here at Camp Meeting. May your Holy Spirit teach us all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.